Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Andrew Cantor, who is an associate attorney at Cantor & Cantor LLP in Los Angeles. And he's here to talk to us about disability. He specializes in disability law, but um, those cases tend to really include a lot of uh, cases involving ME-CFS, which is uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, for those of you who aren't familiar. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we uh, get to get to have this discussion. This is the yes. first time I'm uh, doing something like this. I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. So why don't we just jump right into it? And if you could just start off by telling us about your legal work in the disability space and how you came to it. Yeah, sure. Of course. So um, as I'm sure some of you uh, put together, my last name is the same as the, uh, as the name of the firm, um, but I am just an associate. My, my parents are uh, Glenn and Lisa Cantor, the, the uh, owners of the firm. And so um, I basically grew up on insurance law because they, mm-hmm. they founded the firm together in, in 2003. And uh, my father had been doing it a lot longer than that. Um, so ERISA and insurance discussions and especially, you know, discussions about disability law were kind of in my universe from a, from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I think a lot of a lot of people who've got lawyer parents who, who hear about the law growing up, uh, the result is the last thing they want to do. Uh, is end up being a lawyer, um, but it ha- <laughs> yeah, and neither of my brothers became lawyers, and they both swore that they would never do it uh, because of that. Um, someone had to do it then. What <laughs> you know, someone had to keep it going. Um, but really, I mean, seeing what they did and seeing you know how they helped people, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And mm. it, uh, so I did anything I could, and you know, got ready and went to law school and followed in their footsteps, basically. Mm. Uh, the you know the MECFS cases specifically, I it, I really fell into it by accident in that, you know when I was first assigned about five years ago to start working on these cases, um, I just had a, a you know I happened to have a few MECFS cases, and when I was talking with the my supervisor about how to basically help these people and how to prove their case, uh, I realized right off the bat that we had a a sliver of the evidence or the information that we did for our MECFS clients than we did for, you know, let's say someone with lupus or someone with a back condition even. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I didn't really understand why this one condition had such a lack of information. Mm-hmm. And what I was basically told is that the, these are kind of a new ser- set of cases coming in. Nobody really knew how to deal with them. We had just found a new test at the time called uh, CPET 
which was this new thing that we were using to help our clients. Um, but we just didn't know that much. Mm. Um, and this continues to be a concern in the medical community and beyond. It's not just a legal issue, but something that, that I'm, I know a lot of people in the ME and CFS community are working toward is, is trying to create structures for diagnosis and for treatment of this disease, but it's one of those really nebulous and insidious diseases that's often misdiagnosed, which I'm sure has a lot to do with why you were having trouble getting the right kind of diagnostics to prove that your clients had this disease. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and you have to keep in mind these insurance companies that we're dealing with, they are, you know, there's a lot of reasons they are just not looking out for your best interests, as I'm sure you wouldn't mm -hmm. be surprised to hear. It's um, good to hear that from a lawyer and have it confirmed from a legal point of view. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, unfortunately, most people who get their insurance through, get their insurance through their employer. Mm -hmm. Most people who get their insurance through their employer, the insurance is governed by a federal law called ERISA. ERISA is a 3,000 page statute, which does a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that it does is it preempts state law damages outside of the benefits owed. So mm -hmm. in other words, the way the law is set up is that if you were to rob a bank and steal a hundred grand and get away, the only way you'd get in any trouble is if the government found you, sued you, successfully convicted you, and then the punishment is you have to give the hundred thousand dollars back. <laughs> and maybe, maybe a little bit in attorney's fees on top. And that's right. it. So imagine if that was the law, how many banks would be getting robbed on a regular basis? Right. The answer is a lot. And a lot. <laughs> there's no incentive for these insurance companies to act properly because they don't, they're not exposed to any actual harm for yeah. acting wrongly, wrongfully. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the stereotypes about evil insurers aren't true in a lot of contexts, but most people don't understand how true it is in the ERISA context. And you know, it ends up impacting the most vulnerable group of people who are disabled individuals who, who need benefits and who need the last thing they need to be screwed around with by their insurance company. Right. So you mentioned that you, you come across other kinds of disabilities and illnesses aside from MECFS. I know that MECFS is your focus, but what other illnesses have you come across in your practice? Oh, I mean, there, you know, the, there's the wide range, you know, everything from Parkinson's, uh, multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injuries, um, autoimmune issues like lupus, um, Ehlers-Danlos, uh, a lot of physical, um, you know, a lot of back injuries. God, the, mm. the, the lack of information and expertise we have on the human back is just mind boggling. Mm. You know, um, so a lot of, lot of back surgeries and related issues, a, a lot of mental health issues these days, you know, yeah. thankfully, I think um, there's a lot more awareness and people are becoming more and more comfortable saying, I, you know, I have a mental health issue and that's okay. I need to take time off work for that. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of those conditions are a lot more, more serious than someone having that kind of peace of mind to say that. Um, you know, there's a, it, it's a pretty wide assortment. You know, there's a lot of different things that can impact someone um, to, to prevent them from working. Um, but, we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of autoimmune and, and MECFS cases and other, you know, uh, unidentified chronic fatigue cases where it's, they, yeah. they can't find any of the markers for MECFS, but they're still debilitating fatigue and they're, you know, it, it's there and we, we do the best we can to show that there's fatigue, even if we can't necessarily prove there's something they're causing it.
Yeah. Well, with regard to MECFS, is the problem from the legal perspective with diagnosis, with regard to medical training, as well as with the lack of treatment protocols when it comes to actually being able to make a case for these individuals? So the answer is yes and no to mm. several of you know those points in that. Of course, the lack of training among medical professionals is just is devastating to people trying to get their benefits paid, uh, especially in this context because you know these insurance companies are twenty years behind medical science, you yeah. know, and they are not going to push themselves to the cutting edge unless it benefits them. you know so as soon as they find a new test that can just you know detect someone faking it, oh man. Cutting edge, they are on that one. <laughs> They'll definitely be on that one, yeah. <laughs> right, but they have no incentive to try and really figure out what's going on with these people, especially because mm -hmm. you know, there's no risk to them to just throwing up their hands and saying, well, we didn't understand this, and right. you know, there's a good chance that a federal judge won't either if yeah. it isn't handled properly and these things aren't fully explained. Um, but so much of it, you know, does end up being dependent on the treating physicians themselves because, mm. you know, there's the question of whether you can get your insurance company to pay the claim. And then there's the question, the separate question of whether you've done enough to do well if you sue them after they have denied you. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of ways to, to accomplish that um, even if you can't convince them to overturn the actual denial. Mm. Um, and so that often ends up being dependent on your, on your own treating physician. And, you know, if most people with back injuries, for example, um, they usually, it's pretty easy to get their doctor to say, yeah, you've got, you know, a C5, C6 problem here. That is definitely not going to let you sit for more than six hours a day. I can certainly write that off on, on well, and they've got an x-ray. They've got something that they can actually hand to the companies is the point, isn't it? Right. And that's, that's a lot of it. And it's not just that there's an x-ray. It's that everyone knows what x-ray is. Yes. You know, everyone knows what an MRI is. They can't say, yeah, we know you say an MRI says this, but does it really show anything? Isn't an MRI just kind of a magical box you throw people in? Right. And that's, that's really what they still try and say about um, things like two-day CPET, which are objective tests designed to measure um, disability. They say, well, you can't prove that that's an actual thing that's peer-reviewed and, and verifiable, even though it mm. certainly is. Um, it's wow. yeah what, and what is do you know about the cpet test do you know what it involves yeah you know two-day cpet it's um as far as i know it's only available in um california northern california and new york and ithaca college um it's a two-day exam only seven or eight minutes per day where they measure um an assortment of things, including your blood oxygen, saturation levels, your VO2 max, and they measure it against, you know, baseline numbers they have as to how the body's supposed to recover. Mm -hmm. um, and they can use those results to actually assess the extent of the extent of disability in a, in a, in a particular individual. Mm. Um, and this can work across a range of disabilities, it sounds like as well. Yes, it, it is designed to detect and measure fatigue from any source. Right. Um, we often find ourselves, you know, using it for MECFS patients because generally that's that's who needs it. But mm -hmm. we have a lot of, you know, people with who have just been on medication for 20 years. Which is something I'm going to ask you about. We're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, cause damage to their, you know, to their system where, you know, I can't point to what in my body is causing this. 
Mm-hmm. I'm pointing to my medical records of 15 years of, you know, tr- you know, trial and error and messing up my body, trying things that weren't working. And now I'm left with all these issues. Well, we have to prove that, but we, it's, there's nothing to prove. We're right. just trying to convince the, the insurance company this person is genuine. And when you and, say there's nothing to prove, what you're saying is that this, this CPET test has been peer-reviewed, it's respected right. in the medical community, but these insurers don't see it as a, a gold standard yet, like they do compa- in comparison to an X-ray or an MRI, as you'd mentioned earlier. Right. It's either that or either the testing we show them, they don't buy, or they're asking for evidence which can't exist. You know, for example, um, pain, they often will ask for, okay, where's the objective evidence to confirm your subjective complaints of pain? Hmm. What exactly are they asking for? How, How do you prove that someone's in pain? And how do you prove that one person's three is someone else's seven? Yeah. And that seven is disabling, but someone else's three is not, but it's the same pain. But who are, who's the insurance company going to say, you know, no, that pain is not sufficient, prove mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And they put people in these positions where they're, they, they know they're asking for evidence which does not exist. Which Do you think that means that that's something that within the medical community, more uh, regulations need to be established in order for patients to have more of a, a clear diagnostic, particularly for, for legal purposes, when it comes to the more subjective concerns like pain and fatigue? You know, the, the concept of that just sounds so wonderful. And I know, but it's also so huge, I know. <laughs> yeah, and especially with what our government is trying to, you know, get accomplished at this moment, the, the idea... Or not get accomplished at this moment. Uh, yeah, I know, we can get started on that later. You know? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's um, the the idea of such regulations actually being powerful enough to guide medical treatment to the point of supporting disability claims. I mean, it sounds incredible, but we're we're far away from that point. I think yeah. more practically, more realistically, the in, in where the next step needs to be just continuing to inform the the medical community and the in the treating physicians because. You know the amount of just misinformation that is out there, and I, I there doesn't seem to be a universal requirement for how doctors have to stay educated. I mean, there are those requirements, but there's really they're really not real. Like yeah. you don't know if after 30 years this doctor actually still knows what the heck they're talking about, or if they've opened a book from anything time after the 80s. You don't really know until they they mess up maybe and get sued and then someone starts looking. Um, yeah. And I, if there are going to be regulations anywhere, it should be continuing at legal education or continuing medical education and or and awareness raising. It sounds like as well. So that awareness raising. And if you've got the, say I know what MECFS is for a start. Exactly. You know, exactly. And when mm-hmm. you've got the government, you Google it and you've got the CDC giving a definition from mm-hmm. 1992 that nobody yeah. Nobody thinks is legitimate anymore. You know, how are doctors supposed to figure out what's what's real and what isn't? Because, you know, the CDC is usually a good source, I think, you know. <laughs> yeah. I haven't assessed all their recommendations, but what's a doctor when a doctor looks at the CDC website, you know, isn't he com- almost committing malpractice by disagreeing with that without yeah. really knowing what they're doing? So, you know, there's nothing more harmful than when the government decides to not only take a position, take a bad one. Yeah. Or the wrong one. You know, it's better if they just like 
shut their mouths and say, we don't really know what MECFS is. Go talk to the action groups or, you know, go yeah. talk to the, talk the, to the doctors. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that you mentioned earlier was about medication and I was wondering whether, um, in particular, painkillers and the opioid crisis has come up in your work as it applies to the invisible illness community. And if cases involving these kinds of medications have become tougher to fight because of the new restrictions and reluctance of healthcare providers to prescribe these medications in the first place, what's that looking like for you nowadays? So, so to the first part of your question, thankfully, I don't see insurance companies successfully utilizing you know, uh, overuse of prescription meds or the use of prescription meds against claimants. Okay. And that's just kind of because of the logical position they're in. You know, if they, if they say, you know, yeah, you say you're disabled because of your back issue, but you're just, you're really just disabled because you're addicted to painkillers. Well, okay. So you're admitting he's disabled Mm. and you're saying the thing disabling him is the painkillers he had to take because of the back issue. Yeah. So even, even if you're right, insurance company, don't you still have to pay him? And <laughs> the answer is usually yes. So sometimes what they'll do is they'll try and kind of float the suggestion out. You know, you were prescribed this much medication and our peer reviewer noted that's four times the amount that an average male, you know, is prescribed. Of course, mm-hmm. they ignore the, you know, the, the, the metal spike sticking out of his leg or something horrific right. that requires that. The thing that makes him not average. Right. Exactly. And so that's that they are not really able to utilize that as well as, as they'd like to, because especially in, in California where I operate, it's, it's a lot easier for us to spin that around on them mm-hmm. than it is uh, for them to utilize it against our clients. Right. Now, what I'm worried of, what I'm at this point, what I'm far more worried about is that a lot of my patients or my clients are having a I lot like that more you call them patients. I know I call them my patients because <laughs> I keep talking about the, the clients now. Yeah. Um, I really should. It shows um, how caring you are though. You know uh, what I mean? <laughs> I, yeah, I appreciate it. I hope that's what it shows. Yeah. Um, the, my concern now is that people are having a much harder time getting the drugs that they need. You know, yeah. people who have been on a consistent regimen you know, of medication, what, what usually is happening is the, their doctor will either retire or their insurance will change and they'll have to switch doctors. And despite being on a, a, a steady regimen for five, 10 years with no problems, they'll switch and say, well, you should never, you shouldn't have been at this yeah. level. I'm not comfortable prescribing this for you. And they can't get what they were getting. And so they're forced to either drop to a lower level or something different altogether. Mm. And for, you know, for my page, my clients, it's, um, it can be extremely difficult. The insurance company say, well, wait, you stopped taking Norco. So you must be getting better. It's like, no, I didn't get, I wasn't able to get it. Well, you're mm-hmm. still able to function without your Norco. And so they, they try and harp on people who are trying to get it for not getting it. And of course that, that doesn't even mention the biggest issue that these people are in pain, you know, if yeah. they are suffering, um, and what the insurance companies seem to be doing is applying the most basic of logic to the most complex of problems. Oh yeah. And, and it's, that's kind of how they operate. If, if it, if it pads their bottom line and it's yeah. the easiest and cheapest way to think, why not think it that way? Because again, there aren't any real repercussions for messing around and, and wrongfully denying all these claims. 
It's really interesting because, you know, you obviously care very much about your clients slash patients. Mm. <laughs> and, sure. um, you know, I, I'm curious about what happens when, when patients do come to you, when, when people who are disabled and chronically ill come to you and come to you for help. Do you find that you're often in a role in which you are providing an extra level of care for them, partially because you're aware of the trials and tribulations they're having to go through, but also because in a way you're addressing this lack of attentiveness that they've experienced from the medical industry and from their insurance providers. Do you find that you end up sort of taking on a caregiver role with them in certain ways as well, that that's sort of part of what you signed up for? Definitely a, a therapist role. Yeah. At some point. Um, because you have to get all the details, and some of that involves some pretty harrowing stories, I'm sure. Oh yeah, and to rehash all of these things can be tough for these people. And you know, um, I, you lawyers in this kind of work, or any kind of line of work where you really have to be a client-centered attorney, mm. you know, you you have a choice. You know, you can you can just kind of keep them at arm's distance and just you know have them write down statements and and just kind of move along and, you know, tell, I'm sorry, I can't answer these questions that, you know, talk to your therapist or something like talk mm -hmm. to your doctor or call your HR representative. Um, and there's lawyers who do that and that's how they operate. And that is totally them. Clearly um, that's not you. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not me. Um, you know, I find that it, it, it's just not my personality. So I'm not going to operate at this arm's length kind of way. Like I want to get to know the people I'm helping and, um, I want to understand what it is the insurance company is missing, what they're really missing about this picture. And, you know, I found out very early on that getting on the phone and talking to someone for an hour, you get way more information than you do about just asking them to fill in questions or fill in the blank, you know? Mm -hmm. And what I also found is that, yeah, you're right to that. These people are to some degree used to, getting brushed aside and not taking seriously. You know, the, what I find most, I think, striking is, is the MECFS and other, you know, similarly situated people. The first time I talk to them and they tell me their story, my response is, oh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't doubt that one bit. I've, I've heard that a lot with the insurance company. They go, wait, what? Like, yeah. leave? Like, you don't think this is crazy? Like, I just told you three crazy things. I'm like, well, I can tell you six. Like, let me tell you what I've heard. Mm -hmm. And they're just even other lawyers who have talked, they've talked to, don't know what this is, disease is, haven't dealt with this, the, an ERISA case before. Um, so between their doctors not believing them and you know, their friends and family not believing them, and, and lawyers they call, not, either not believing them or not really understanding what they need to do, um, yeah, I, I might be the first person who they actually feel is on their side. Yeah. Um, and if that, you know, and as a result, I often end up, you know, as more of a, not less like less a caregiver, more of a therapist role. Right. Um, but is that, do you find that draining though? I mean, obviously you really care about these cases and, and you are committed to creating some kind of change within this, the system and the logic that these insurance companies are using in, in these cases. But, you know, how do you leave that at work and come home and, you know, not take on all that trauma? You know, um, I, I guess I'm just lucky in a way because I, I don't find it draining. Um, I, I find what I find draining is the is the negative 
interactions with clients. You know, when a client's upset with me or doesn't understand what's going on and is directing their ire at me, that is what can be draining. But, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm on the phone with someone and, and I'm helping them and I know after the phone, the call ends that I, you know, calm them down a little bit or help them, you know, sleep a little bit better today, you know, I, that's rejuvenating to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the aspect of, you know, how do I not bring that trauma home? You know, everyone's, the disability is, it's extraordinarily traumatic to every person who goes through it. It's a whole, you know, but it's, it's not traumatic for me to hear about these kind of stories because it's mostly, you know, people explaining how they became disabled, they were working. It's, I'm not dealing with that, that personal trauma, you know, with say, say criminal law or something like that. Um, where it's, it's something that I have to kind of push away. It's, these are human beings. These are their normal, natural stories. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm not jaded by them uh, yeah. at all. Ironically. Well, that's that kind of sort of endless hope is actually really contagious and really wonderful to hear that someone right. on your side of this situation is, is like that, has that kind of attitude. It must be really great for your clients. So, you know, we're talking a bit about the, this insurance system and, and the kinds of cases that you're, you're working on. In what way is our health system working for patients? Because um, we're talking about the ways in which these insurance companies are falling short, but are there ways in which things are actually working and we're seeing inroads for people with disabilities? Um, certainly there are some ways in, in which it's working. You know, I think first, it, for people who have a lot of money, the system is really good in America. I mean, still, right. if you've got dollars, I, I dare say there's almost nowhere on, in the country better you can get treatment. And yeah, there's no doubt that um, we are not caught up with uh, MECFS or a lot of these issues we need to be caught up on. Mm. Um, but I still think with our system, it's a lot easier to get that top level treatment for that unique issue then um, it is in a more you know universal or socialized kind of system, mm. um, but you know I'm not so convinced by that to say that it's a reason to stay with what we've got now because hopefully you know everyone can have care and everyone can get the top level care if they need it. Um, but so you know there are still opportunities and some of the best doctors in the world are still the ones working in the U.S. Um, you know. I, I, to some degree, you know, I try not to take that for granted. You know, I, mm. my wife gave birth a few weeks ago. And, and I know. I was like, when do we get to tell everyone you're a new dad? <laughs> oh, yeah, right. There you go. Um, and, uh, you know, I, yeah, I wasn't happy with the $3,000 bill I had to pay at the end. Mm. Of it, but I also felt that she was literally in the best hand she possibly could be. I mean, mm. the place was clean. There was, their security was tight. You know, we had access to people. The doctor was as competent as, as possibly could be. We got to choose our doctor, you know, amongst other doctors. And so I, I realized, again, you know, I am a lawyer, so I'm uh, including myself in the, in the group of people with money, you know, air quotes. Hmm. I have access to all of that. I have top of the line healthcare. And I, you know, thank God if anything awful ever happened to my wife or me, or I can't mention the, the other option. Um, we'd be taken care of to at least to some extent. Now that, that that's only 1%. What about everyone else? Well, and the other question is, has 
has your experience also influenced the way in which you've approached healthcare for your family and for yourself? You know, like, are you much more wary of certain practitioners and, and looking more at certain kinds of sort of health systems? Well, maybe, you know, um, it's, you know, I don't do a lot of the health insurance side work yet. You know, the firm, our firm does, and does a lot of health insurance litigation. Um, but yeah, you know, seeing, seeing how it operates can kind of impact, impact my decisions about, about what I do. But, mm. you know, what, one thing I will tell you is for all of those people out there who are, are dealing with the workers' compensation system, I am sorry. Because at least in California, it is one of the most nightmarish setups I've ever seen. And it is, there, there, there cannot be a harder way than the workers' comp system to get the medical care that you need. It, it's like, it is just the worst, most backward, upside-down system. And I can't tell you how many people, you know, the insurance company denies someone and says, well, you didn't get this treatment for a year. I would have loved to if workers' comp would have authorized it. Mm. Um, so there's so much embedded within the system that I don't think people really pay attention to. You know, no one talks about the workers' comp system and how workers' comp is going to be Im impacted um, by universal health care or something similar. Yeah. I, I don't have any answers. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but it's just, to me, that's one of the things that, Man, if the workers' comp system would disappear and people who get injured at work could get reasonable health care, that would just be wonderful. That would begin to fix the problem. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. Well, how do we fix it? What do you think? It's a big question. <laughs> Frankly, the workers' comp system, I think you get rid of it. You mm. just get rid of it and you... You provide you, good health care instead. Yeah, and you go back to the system where if, a, if you got injured on the, you know, on the job, you sue your employer. Mm. And, and you see what happens. And you, you, know, you get your medical care. And you know, this, the whole system was designed to you know, minimize lawsuits against employers out of, you know the recurring theme throughout history of the greedy plaintiff's lawyers concept, which more often than not is corporations raising that to protect themselves mm -hmm. from damage laws or things like that. So what you're saying is that the, it's really that companies are being protected and not individuals because of right. the Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So it's yeah. about switching that dynamic around. It sounds like it's, one of the things, possible. yeah. And one of the things we talked about um, before you and I jumped on this interview, we chatted, you know, a few weeks ago. And one of the things you did bring up at that time, particularly with regard to MECFS was about gender disparity. Oh yeah. And, yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I'm really interested for you to share with our listeners, your take on the way in which you're seeing a difference between the diagnostics in cases involving women versus cases involving men or even cases involving people who are non-binary or um, non-gender conforming. What, what's been your experience of that in the cases that you've encountered? 
Yeah. So, you know, my kind of journey into this topic, it was, was kind of the, the cart leading the horse in that I, I, I early on got hit with a case where they basically came up with all these awful reasons to discredit my client, which really, really agitated me. Um, so I went through and researched any piece of evidence I could find discrediting their doctor. Mm. And in doing this, I actually stumbled upon a lot of evidence, and this was still early in my, in my career, a lot of evidence of generally about discrimination against women and believing their pain complaints. Mm. Um, and kind of digging into that topic was really illuminating because statistically what you'll find is that women are, I think last time I checked, a factor of two or three believed less and tests are not ordered at their request compared to men when there is a lack of diagnosis. I mean, there's studies across, you know, multiple arenas showing that women and their subjective non-confirmed complaints are um, believed at a far lower rate than those of men. And ironically, I think, you know, I, I looked at all this research. And I'm like, man, I got to really look into this and, and keep my eyes open for this. Two weeks later, I had a case where, you know, a super nice woman calls me. I think she had ME-CFS or something, something similar. It was an unkind confirmed illness. And she shows me the peer review report. And she says, you know, before you read this, I, you know, I, I was just so angered by this. And I, you know, you have to tell me if I, I had no, you know, I was out of line. I'm sure you see this all the time and they just do these things. And, you know, you tell me if this is really unique and I really have a reason to be upset. I'm thinking in my head, you know, it's probably what I see every day. I'm sure it's upsetting, but there's no way I'm going to see anything that's going to make me say, what the hell? Right. I read, I read, I read, I get to the last line. She most, more likely than not is suffering from a bout of hysteria. <gasps> mm, I'm glad you don't like that word either. <laughs> Every time I hear that word, it makes me go bananas. Because it's just, it makes me go hysterical because it's one of those words that's been used. It's been weaponized against women in every single way, hasn't it? To the point where when I saw it, I called her back and said, you basically won your case. Um, the fact that their doctor used the phrase hysteria, I mean, we are going to just rub this in their face. And, and basically every line of the complaint is going to be your idiot doctor used the word hysteria to describe a female claimant who is suffering from this list of issues. And there, you know, there was a, a mile long list of the lab tests and the, and the documents and the journals showing how severe her physical issues were. And because he needed something to say, hysteria. And so I, yeah, I basically threw the paper in the air. It's like, okay, she's right. This was- Were you able to wipe the floor with these guys? Oh, they, we didn't even have the chance. We filed the complaint, called the other side and said, Read pages X through Y of the file. Our demand is full reinstatement and X in attorney's fees. We want to hear back from you within a week. If we don't, we're, we're moving forward and the fee bill is going to go up. Two days later, they reinstated. I mean, so they, so, so these insurers are aware that language like that um, and that kind of brushing off of patients with such specific use of language is at best outdated and at worst, you know, borderline asking for a problem, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, each insurance company has its own personality. Mm. Um, and I know some are a lot smarter than others. You know, the lawyers for some are a lot smarter than others where um, this lawyer in this case was smart as hell. She saw this, she saw the writing on the wall and she was, you know, how am I ever going to look a federal judge in the eye 
and say that this this doctor who uses the phrase hysteria should be believed over this woman's own treating physicians. The in in you know you just can't justify it. And mm-hmm. so some of the smart ones will very early on if they have a relate, you know, if they know who we are and know that they actually will end up getting their butts kicked if they don't just reinstate and, and you know, yeah. pay the fees, um, they are willing to, to make, you know, to, to, to fix things in that regard. But only once they're sued. Only once they're right. sued. Only once they know someone who knows what they're doing is, on, is handling the case. Uh, you until really then. have to poke the bear, don't you? Oh, yeah, just a little bit. But <laughs> the bear in this context is really slow, really old, really, you know, unintelligent. It just yeah. happens to be taking up a ton of space. You know, it's yeah. just there and you have to deal with it, but it is not a ferocious bear, fortunately. Well, speaking of these bears, I, I have to ask, what's your success rate like in these in these disability cases? You know, is it because I know that they're all so complex in their own ways, but are you finding that when you're not coming up against the various roadblocks that are established by, you know, government statutes and, and a lack of understanding in the medical community, are you finding that you do have success when you're taking the right strategies and, you know, really finding the best way in to make these insurance companies do something about what they're promising their, uh, their patients? Yeah. You know, um, I love being asked this question because uh, the answer is I've yet to lose. Um, <gasps> oh, that makes me feel very good. I got a chill. <laughs> I have yet to lose, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, mean I'm, I'm a super lawyer. Rather, right. I, what, the way these cases work is that, when, you know, if, one, if you're denied the appeal and you have to litigate, at some point, the other side, the insurance company will offer a lump sum of money mm-hmm. um, to walk away. And there are a lot of factors on whether a lump sum is good or bad, you know, compared to the the strength of the case and all these things. It is extremely rare that we end up with a situation where they offer an amount of money that we are advise our clients, you know, to take and the client doesn't take it and we have to go to trial anyway and we end up losing. So Mm -hmm. if, if we're at trial, it's usually a case where our case is extremely strong Mm. Um, or there's a really specific legal issue that is kind of up in the air. So most of the cases settle, and that's really where you get to it. Because for a lot of these people, they sh- they if they don't take a lump sum, even if they win at trial, the result is they get paid up to date, mm. and then they go back on claim with the insurance company. So the next week, the insurance company can just go start it all over again. Mm. And you know, depending on the individual, that is basically losing all over again because the right. idea of dealing with them is so awful. So, um, the, uh, most of the cases settle, uh, the cases I have taken a trial, I have one, thankfully. Um, and the insurance companies don't usually appeal once you win a trial, uh, cause once they because lose a the trial, <laughs> they, they, well, they, they, they've usually lost pretty soundly and they know yes. that Yeah, uh, we're, you know, we're making a ton, uh, we're, we're making a ton of progress as far yeah. as identifying, you know, ways to support MECFS and other issues. And, you know, basically just, we are, every time a, a case comes out, which is unhelpful to a piece of evidence we use, mm. we go get a, you know, a piece of evidence fixing it or something explaining why that assessment is wrong. You know, we've done that, I think, three times now with CPAT. Mm. Um, every time we get a, a comment from an insurance company or a, a bad decision, we go and we fix it so we can submit that with every case going forward. 
Um, and it just, you know, the difference between now and five years ago with MECFS is, is enormous. It, it really, it really is. Um, you know, the, the concept of me being, you know, having this discussion with you and being asked to, to speak about this topic and, and these disability claims, um, no one knew enough five years ago. It was still, you know, I think a lot more invisible than, than it was now yeah. is the issue, thankfully. And so there's hope for the future. If yeah, five absolutely. Years you've made this much oh. progress. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of it is also that you're the expert in this too. So it, with regard to things like the CPET and, you know, these insurance companies trying to deny you, um, you know, these claims and, and the truth of the matter, you're already prepared with ammunition to tell them why they're wrong, which is probably very handy to have all of that ready to go, really. Oh, it is. It's a lot, and it's a lot of fun too to have all that yeah. evidence ready to go and to know <laughs> what they're going to do. You know, to give them a nice, good slap in the face. <laughs> oh yes, it, it can be fun. It can be yeah. fun, and you know, I, some of these insurance companies, as I said, when they take on a personality, there's one or two that have taken on a really evil personality, and that yeah. we really, really like beating up on. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it. it it, it is what it is. I, I'm lucky enough to, to love what I do and to love the people I do it for. Mm. Uh, so if an insurance company wants to make me feel like the super good guy for doing it, fine, by all means, let them, yeah. let them go ahead and do it. Now, you know, you mentioned like you're in a good position because you're a lawyer and you have access to healthcare and stuff for people who are coming to you and, and might be, you know, trying to take on their insurance companies because they're not making an income. Um, how do you make your services affordable for them? Is it something where you would take a cut of the winnings from a case like this? Um, or is it pro bono work? How does that work with you guys? And how do you help your clients um, fund their legal fees? Yeah. So first, um, we are a contingency firm. So for most of our cases, we will just take, we'll take a percentage of benefits we recover for you once we recover them. Right. Um, and only if we recover them. Um, and a lot of lawyers who are contingency lawyers do that. Um, Which is we very also, kind considering. Well, it, the, the end result is we, if we win, we get more than how much we would have charged if we had just done it on an hourly basis. Uh, you know, and that's why, you know, a lawyer has upside for doing a contingency. Right. Um, but it's also great for a claimant who has no money in, in their pocket too. And also, you know, we will advance the cost for all the testing that needs to get done. Oh, wow. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. Not a lot. Not all firms will do that. Um, it's something we do. I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but from our perspective, we, that's one of the biggest hurdles for people not only getting access to the legal representation they need, because mm. even if they find a lawyer on contingency, the lawyer says, well, you're still going to have to pay for this out of pocket. Right. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not an option, especially if you need five to $10,000 of testing, which sometimes you do, mm. you know, it can stop people short right then and there. So we right. definitely don't want that. And from our perspective, if we're taking the case and we're taking a percentage, um, it's to some degree our obligation to, if we think it's our duty, it's our job to win, we're going to put our you know, money where our mouth is and get yeah. you the evidence you need. Um, so that's one way we do it is that, you know, it's a, it's a contingency. Um, admittedly for some people, they are in a better position if they pay someone hourly than mm -hmm. a contingency. Cause you know, some, someone might have a really like specific legal, the legal issue that all they need is a letter from a lawyer pointing out a few cases, you know, 3000 bucks and it'll probably get fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, pay $3,000 and be done with it. That's a lot better than paying, you know, 20% of your benefit for the next three years. Right. 
Um, so it's not always ideal to do it contingency, but that's one way someone without anything in their pocket can get access to, to lawyers like us. And our, our clientele is all across the, the, the range as far as, as income levels. Right. Um, you know, one of the few upsides with ERISA is that, and this kind of combines with what we do with some other clients, um, is that the attorney's fees statutes are really good. So, you know, if there's a case that's $20,000, in dispute total, you know, it's this, it's this person's everything. They need this 20,000. It's, you know, we can't usually take a contingency case for $20,000. It's just mm-hmm. not financially feasible. But what we can do is litigate it, not charge the client anything, as long as they agree to let us pursue whatever fees we want from the other side. And we can often end up getting paid from the other side and ah. nothing out of the, the individual's pocket that is a kind of a more unique situation where the case is really strong. It's a certain insurance set of insurance companies who we know will play ball. Um, and that the, the money at stake has to be, you know, within a, a much lower range mm. the, where it makes sense. But so that's another way that we, we really like to um, help people out who, who, even if they could hire a contingency firm, the benefits in dispute are probably too small to, to take it on, on that basis. Right. But it's wonderful, though, because I think there are a lot of people out there listening who might not even know that they have access to legal counsel um, because they might think that they can't afford an hourly rate for a lawyer. But actually, it's worth contacting particularly contingency lawyers, it sounds like, because you may actually have ways to get your case heard and to get some help. Um, beyond what seems obvious. Like we all think of a lawyer and we think, oh boy, I'm about to shell out thousands and thousands (laughs) of dollars, but it might not be as clear cut as that. And there might be ways to actually make it work where, as you're saying, the insurance company is actually paying the attorney's fees because of these particular um, statutes in place. Right, right, exactly. It can end up working that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, And I, you know, I can't tell you how many times someone has, you know, called me, we've talked for an hour and said, okay, how much do I owe you? You don't owe me anything. You know, this, this is part of the free consultation that we give in assessing, you know, a case and and most contingency lawyers will do that. They'll give a free consultation. So, you know, it it is almost always worth a phone call to an ERISA lawyer who offers free consultations in your state. Mm -hmm. Um, because you never know, you know, what kind of info they can give you that can help. I know that yeah. there's plenty of times where I've given really easy pieces of info that, you know, no, uh, someone who's never filed for disability wouldn't know that can can make a huge difference in you know, the ease of the next couple of weeks or couple of months of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot out there that, that, that uh, can be helpful. It offers a lot of hope to people listening. Um, I think we've covered so much today. I wanted to know if there was anything else you wanted to add um, before I get onto my top three list, because I like to end with a little list. (laughs) Um, But anything else you'd like to add for the listeners out there? It sounds like really, you know, if you have questions, call a lawyer and find out because you might have more options than you think, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, There's and if you do end up dealing with a, a, a risk of disability case or a disability case specifically, um, make sure you find someone who handles disability lawsuits. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want the, the local general practice attorney handling these things. Um, you want someone with experience in, in that particular area. There's a lot of us out there, but you want someone who's, you know, actually tried these cases in front of the local judge or the judges in your federal district and won um, so they know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's do this top three list, Andrew. Um, let's do it. 
What would your top three tips be for someone who thinks or, you know, either they've been diagnosed or suspect they may be diagnosed soon um, with some kind of invisible illness, be it ME-CFS or, or anything else that you're litigating um, and might need to either apply for disability insurance coverage or take advantage of their employer's um, mm. disability insurance. What tips would you give to these people aside from giving a lawyer a call and finding <clears> out what you can get done? What, what tips would you give them in terms of like entering this world of sort of endless litigation and, and worry and concern? And what, what do you say for these people to offer them hope? Yeah. I mean, so some practical tips I can provide. Hmm. Uh, the first thing you want to do is make sure you have a copy of your policy or your plan document, as it's called sometimes uh, through your employer. So if you don't have it, just ask your employer for a copy in writing. They're required. Um, if um, your employer is not a church or government organization, they are required to give it to you within 30 days of the receipt of the written request. Mm -hmm. So that's where everybody should start before you file a claim, read it and read it carefully um, because each policy is different. Uh, pay special attention to the exclusions and limitations sections. Mm -hmm. This is where disability policies will vary. And this is where people all different kinds of people can get into all different kinds of trouble depending on what their issues are. Mm -hmm. um, but most of these policies will have mental health limitations where they only pay for two years if your condition is based on a mental health issue. <sighs> they love, insurance companies love using that as a blanket um, yeah. limitation. If there's so much evidence that they can't say that you're not disabled, but there's, you know, question about what's causing it, they'll just shove it into this mental health limitation mm -hmm. corner. Which is so subjective, isn't it? That's really tough. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they, they, it, it is really subjective, but the, the way that insurance companies try and shoehorn these things, they usually don't do a great job of it. If, you're, if your own doctors are supportive and in line of, yeah, this is a physical issue, which they usually are, um, it, it is not usually very easy for them to justify the mental health limitation. Mm. Um, it gets hard when someone goes off for mental health reasons and then develops physical issues. That becomes the harder case to prove. Right. Hmm. Um, so get a copy of your policy and pay close attention to it. Before you give the insurance company the names of the doctors you are going to rely upon, get the medical records yourself. Mm -hmm. yourself before the insurance company even knows the names because they will go get the records themselves. 99% of the time, it is no problem at all. Um, and they, the records look exactly how you expect them to look, maybe a little scarce about some details. Um, but if the, there is a problem with the records where either there's a bunch of information missing, you know, you had a 45 minute conversation with your doctor about how, how much pain you're in and there's nothing in there about that mm -hmm. or which occasionally happens, unfortunately, fortunately less so now than three or four years ago, the, in the records could be patient complains of symptom list here, strong possibility it is psychosomatic. Mm. Where your doctor all along, who you think is your, your, you know, your ally and supporting you, actually you know, indicates in the notes that this could be all in your head. Now, interestingly, I, what I've heard from doctors sometimes is they only say that to like protect themselves. And in one oh, but yeah, because they don't want malpractice suits. <laughs> yeah, because it's, and, but I don't, I didn't really understand the thought process, but I, I don't, I think when doctors start thinking about legal stuff, I think their heads start to spin a little bit, just like when I start 
thinking about too much, you know, medical stuff, my head starts to spin. But, <laughs> it's all um, psychosomatic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. There you go. See, you, you understand how this works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so get get the medical records yourself. Um, mm. And, and, and it sounds like also possibly have a conversation with your doctor if there's something in there that may potentially be misleading. Yes. If, diagnoses since then. Right. If there's something that you are concerned about, you definitely want to discuss it with your doctor. Not in writing. You want to discuss it with your doctor over the phone or in person because you never know when a doctor will take an email and put it in your medical records. Mm. Uh, so you know, if you have an email saying, I don't think this is accurate. I want you to change this. And the right. doctor emails the response. No, it's right. accurate. I meant what I said. You're, you know, you've got some trouble. Go see your doctor and talk to them about it in person. Yeah. In right. person. Exactly. Um, so yeah, make sure you get the records, make sure you read your policy. If you are denied, mm. if your claim is denied, you have a right to your claim file. So ask for that in writing. Mm -hmm. Just ask, I, I would like a copy of my claim file and send it off um, in a trackable form. Uh, that is one of the perks of ERISA, if it's an ERISA case, that they give you uh, access to all the documents that you can need that they relied upon. Um, it can be really helpful. It's, we need it to assess the case if we're going to look at it. Right. Um, you will assume you will be social media surveilled. If you have a social media presence and you file a disability claim, they will see it. They will see all of it. Yeah. If you have a private account that you believe is private, assume it's not all that private. Right. I have not figured out whether I can genuinely say I believe that they're committing, they're hacking or committing any crimes, but there are way too many scenarios where an insurance company lawyer during the case presents me with info and the client turns to me and says, there's no way they could have that. That is, it was on my private account. Here's the context, by the way, but this was private. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the first couple times I heard it, I kind of rolled my eyes after the 10th, 11th, 12th, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. So be really careful with what you post online and just assume that they're going to look at it. That the and if they see you having fun, they're going to try to deny you. Yeah. Unfortunately they are. And it, it they don't understand that some days are good and some days are bad. They just need to right. see that every day is bad, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, one way to, that's another thing to, to, to mention is it's, it's a great point is that if you're just talking to insurance companies, make sure you you point out your good days and bad days. You know, some people I've talked to, they say, well, I don't want to tell them that I have, I have good days and bad days. I don't seem that disabled. Well, you know what? It's a, not all that true because I think everyone understands now that if someone has this kind of illness, the, the whole point is that there's good days and bad days. Hmm. You know, I don't you think, think insurance companies understand that now. Well, they're, they're starting to, I think they're more suspicious if someone is just permanently laid up in bed with no explanation for it. Interesting. Um, whether, you know, yeah, the, I think the nature of MECFS in these conditions is that some days people have energy and some days people just don't. Yeah. And so people often think, well, I can't tell them that. Well, I, I certainly would tell them that because if they catch you taking your dog on a walk for 15 minutes after you've told them that you never were able to leave the house, mm. your entire case is torpedoed. Because Got it. Once they can attack your credibility and they can put together a narrative that can convince a judge that you're just making all of this up, you're lying to your doctors, you're lying to your friends, you're, you know, as soon as they have that hook, your case becomes exponentially weaker. On the flip side, if you are able to protect your credibility, you say, look, yeah, you know what? Last Wednesday, if they asked last Wednesday, I, I had a great day. I went, I drove and I, I got some groceries for a half an hour and the next four days I was laid up in bed, but I had a good day last Wednesday. Mm. They surveil you and lo and behold, they see you grocery shopping on Wednesday. Yeah. If you hadn't told them the truth, 
they get this and they use it against you because you yeah. told them the truth. They have now have surveillance confirming that you're honest. Yeah. Well, and I've heard stories even of, of people being photographed. I mean, like these insurance companies hire private investigators and they have photographed people. I mean, I think there was some, I'm trying to remember what it was, something in the last few months where there was some controversy about people being photographed within their homes because mm. of, you know, private property in their private space, mm-hmm. but they were being photographed in their homes, walking around and, you know, maybe doing a, an exercise video or something. And the insurance company was photographing them through their windows and got in trouble for doing that. But I mean, you do in these cases, you can truly be followed by PIs and various um, companies that have been contracted by the insurance company. But I think before anyone does any of this, talk to a lawyer, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, definitely. And, you know, don't panic too much mm. early on. You know, I'm, I'm obviously giving you the, the, the sky is falling version. Because right. It's not super helpful to tell you about all the things that could go right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes it does go right. You just file your claim and you're paid with no hassle. Well, in your case, it seems to go right. So. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just be, you know, but yeah, you can assume that there's, there's a hundred percent chance they're going to see your social media. Mm. And I'd say, um, I don't know, a third of people are surveilled physically, um, of the climate that I see, a lot. Um, but that probably means, um, a, a smaller percentage of the population as a whole are surveilled because, you know, I don't get calls from people who are paid without hassle. So I'm sure those people weren't surveilled. Um, so, you know, physical surveillance is not necessarily as, um, prevalent as it was, I think because they have social media and right. that's so effective at getting, accomplishing their goals. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot more ability to explain these things, um, than there used to be. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, expect the surveillance is mm. probably another thing as well. Well, Andrew, where can our guests find you if they want to give Cantor and Cantor a call and speak to you or any of your associates at the firm? Yeah, you know, you can check out the website. Uh, CantorLaw.net has um, not only info on how to contact us, but a lot of resources about, you know, filing a claim and filing an appeal and, and lots of uh, things of that nature. Um, the main line is on there. You're welcome to call and, and ask for me or just to ask to speak to someone at intake about, about your issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also feel free to email me directly. Um, if you have a case specific question, I'm happy to answer it. Um, if it requires more than just a quick answer, I, I'll certainly provide it if I can. Um, my email address is a cantor, K A N T O R at cantorlaw.net. Mm-hmm. Um, really I'm always happy to answer questions. Uh, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have one. Well, how generous of you to offer everyone your email address. That's really fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been really valuable having this conversation with you. And I hope that um, the people out there listening have gotten a lot out of this because I certainly have. There's so many things I've learned today. (laughs) It was was really a a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad you asked me to to come here and speak and I hope I uh, get to chat with you again soon. Absolutely. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.